You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seat belts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabalcast. This week, we're doing another interview, but this one's going to be a little bit different than some of our previous ones. We're actually interviewing a friend of mine who is from Australia and is one of the largest single vendors in the continent, but we're interviewing him about technology and what it means for the industry because he's very keen on using technology to your advantage to make work more efficient. And having operated at every level of the game, he is very knowledgeable and has a lot of good insight. Uh, so his name is Nick. And without further ado, we'll get it started. All right, everybody. Halt here with Nick from MTG Mate. And so we just want to discuss, you know, how you're interested in both magic and, te and technology development kind of evolved and brought you to where you are. And we'll start out pretty easy. Like everybody, we all got into magic at some point in time some way uh for a lot of people it's grade school people are playing cards at recess how did you get into magic um that's, that's a pretty funny story peter um so my parents uh i want to say in the early 2000s were looking at opening um a game store oh okay and uh in order to do that they sort of had a look at some other local game stores that were that were in the area and one of them was a store that did trading card games and so they took me along it was like a wednesday night or something the store was pretty empty but the uh the guy behind the counter there was just a wealth of information and sort of sort of told them all the ins and outs of the business way more information than he probably should have shared and they did they did pokemon they did magic and they did um they're an internet cafe as well oh okay and they kind of like felt that they should buy something given all the information that uh he gave them and so they asked me like what what do you want do you want anything from the store and i was like oh this magic thing sounds pretty good um can i get the the eighth edition starter deck and um that's that's pretty much what started me on the uh slippery slope of collecting uh you know expensive uh cardboard rectangles i'd always played pokemon a little bit and i mm -hmm. sort of um collected the cards as well and so this new game seemed pretty cool and i took it to my best friend and uh, we, we both played with the, the starter deck, and I think his mum worked at, like, a Target, and she got us some of the discounted cards that were selling out and stuff. And, um, yeah, he, he sort of never really got into the game much further than playing on the kitchen table, but mm -hmm. I wanted to make the jump into, like, more competitive play or play other people and stuff like that. And then from there I met a bunch of the friends that I still have today. And, um, yeah, you know, would travel on the train every Friday into the city to to play Magic. This was about uh, Onslaught Mirrodin was the, yep. the format of Standard at the time, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I got started. No one really showed me the the game. It was Gross. just more like my my parents felt they needed to buy something, and I was like, oh, I'll give this Magic thing a go. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, that story is actually very similar to how I got started, especially right around that time. I think the first packs that I ended up buying were like Torment, but I didn't actually begin playing until Legions, 
Oh, okay. So, you know, months uh, ahead of you. But similarly, I had uh, friends that also played because their older siblings played and the cards got handed down. And so we just kind of played casually, except for one friend of mine. And every <laughs> Friday, uh, let's see. So, yeah, uh, Onslaught. I did build Slide. I did build Slide very soon after Onslaught hit. So we were just driving over another town to go play competitive FNMs. And yeah. it's a story I remember fondly. It's a, a time I remember fondly. And from there, that, that springboarded me like those couple sets to the friends I still have now who still played competitively, but only after uh, moving away to college. Yep. So uh, you are also a vendor of sorts. Yes. Right? So I am... Um... I own a business called MTG Mate, um, mtgmate.com.au, and we are an online vendor of Magic the Gathering singles in Australia. Um, it's a company I started in 2018, and um, yeah, things are things are going well. Um, I've always sort of like been in the vending space for the last mm-hmm. 10 or so years. I worked at some other stores and helped run their events at various GPs and stuff like that. And when I first started playing Magic, I really sort of had that um, penchant for trading and hustling because, you know, being a 16-year-old with not a whole lot of money, you sort of have to get the most out of your cards and trying to find those new things you need for the next deck or, you know, when Tooth and Nail isn't quite working as well as you want it to, <laughs> you want to build a different a different yep. deck and you've got to try and convert your cards you have into... Ravager to cards Affinity. You... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, things that beat Ravager Affinity. Uh, fair. <laughs> But, and I, this is kind of interesting because we never really had the opportunity to talk to somebody from another region, let alone the APAC region, which seems kind of difficult to work in if you aren't like mainland Asia. But at the same time, it provides or has provided some interesting opportunity. Uh, and I know this is well before your time, but sets like Portal 3 Kingdom were very well distributed. To the APAC region. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, people were, there were stories about, like, people buying P3K and sending it overseas because it was super rare. And then I remember when I first sort of went to the States, people would be like, Did you, do you have lots of P3K stuff? And it's like, I, I don't even know what this set is. Yeah. And you sort of discover, like, oh, it's this exclusive set to Australia and New Zealand, I believe, that uh, virtually never saw the cards, probably because they weren't tournament legal. And I think a few other people, you know, before my time figured out that there were markets for these things, especially when they unbanned Ban Paul and all those sort of cards disappeared and removed themselves from the local local card pool. But um, I think very early on I was exposed to the different regions and stuff like that. I, I have fond memories of, like, uh, there was a guy who would travel from New Zealand and he would have various magic cards that we just couldn't get our hands on. I distinctly remember plow under being like 18 dollars in scry but the local value was like 35 dollars because everyone wanted to play plow under in their astral slide yep eternal witness deck mm-hmm. and that was sort of my first experience of like different markets uh having different values on cards and so has that kind of been a through line for you uh, as a business owner with mtg meet um I think there are like I, I've learned a lot about the different markets since I started the company. Um, I have some good friends in Japan, and I used to v- visit Japan quite frequently um, prior to COVID. And you would learn like which cards are Japan cards, mm-hmm. like which kind of things that they found very popular, 
and stuff like that. I think like for Australia though, like we just have there's less people, there's less cards, so like it's not so much that cards are more popular in Australia; it's just that they're harder to find sometimes. Okay. Um, like a, a really good example at the moment is like Mystic Remora. Um, you know, there's tons of Ice Age out there, but it hasn't really had many reprints, mm-hmm. and it still commands quite a premium in Australia because there's just not enough copies locally to buy from players. Everyone that has a copy has it in their EDH deck. Mm-hmm. Like they're not they're not letting go of it, and you know. I know Ice Age was a heavily open set, but like probably more so in North America than it was opened in Australia mm-hmm. at that time. So uh, this is kind of going off script, but you made me think about it. Bring up Mystic Remora. Um, is Australian Highlander as popular as some people make it out to be? Um, it's 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 reasonably popular. Um, I don't think it's everyone is playing it, but I think a lot of people that play competitive Magic probably have been have experienced australian highlander in in some in some fashion and in the last couple of years it's really started to pick up it used to be a thing that was sort of just localized to a couple of states um so in particular melbourne and canberra were the two major states that played seven point highlander Mm -hmm. um they used to actually have two different points lists and i'm i'm not a historian and this is well before (laughs) my time but like they got together and like I think one was a seven point list and one was a ten point list and they got together and formed a committee and they standardized Highlander across the country. Nice. And so Highlander is something that I've been playing for I think since about two thousand and ten when I started to oh, travel wow. travel for magic. But I never really played it a lot. It was just a side event that was at various things like nationals or GPs and stuff okay. like that. Um, but in the last five or so years, it's really started to pick up and expand across the country. Yeah. Um, like Brisbane, where I'm from, never had a community, and now now it does. Um, there's a community in Brisbane. There's a community in Toowoomba, which is about a two-hour drive from Brisbane. Um, there's a whole community in Perth, which is the other side of the country mm-hmm. um, that never existed before. And I believe Adelaide has a pretty strong eternal scene, um, and there's been a lot of champions of the format there. So it's definitely gone from like, you know, a fairly niche thing to like one or two states to having like much broader appeal. Yeah. And there's there's different meta games and stuff as well. Like I know that uh, the the Queensland, which is the state that I'm from, the meta game there favors um, underworld breach decks a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, like Melbourne in particular favors like Farsa's Oracle as the premier combo deck. Um, but yeah, it's definitely really started to pick up and like. I know that when I'm acquiring cards overseas, there are certain things that I'll pick up that uh, are quite popular in the format. Mm-hmm. I think they're also just popular in Commander as well, yeah, um, and other formats. But um, yeah, it's definitely definitely been like things that I've we've we've got more players in Brisbane than I could have dreamed of mm-hmm. like five or six years ago. I think our Highlander turnout is like at least thirty people on the monthly monthly kind of event. And I know people are always brewing decks and they have different decks on the go. It's similar to like Commander where you have an idea and you can run with it. And yeah. There's a bunch of staple cards that you include in most blue decks or whatever and then you evolve the rest of the uh, the deck the deck idea from there. Yeah. Uh, a, a few people I know have bought into uh, Canlander, just the, the Canadian Highlander version. Yeah. And I never got a whole lot of experience to uh, the Australian variant. 
I mainly caught it in um, articles on MTG The Source from uh, the Adelaide Eternal group. They oh, would, yep, yep. They would drive to go play, and, like, their shortcake player, the, the red-white painter, servant grindstone player who writes amazing reports, would talk about uh, Australian Highlander here and there throughout the article. And I know somebody who um, who's from Australia that plays as well, so it's always just kind of, like, floated around, so I thought I'd, I'd float the question. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying Australian 7-point Highlander at the moment. It's probably my favorite format to play, um, and that used to be Legacy and uh, Vintage, but, you know, Vintage is sort of, you know, on the way of... Yeah, yeah, the way of telegrams and VHS and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but, like, I just... I really enjoy, like, the diversity of games and the diversity of decks. Um, whereas, like, Legacy, especially if you're playing with the same group, can get a little bit stale unless you have, like, a couple of those people that have big collections and are willing to build different decks each week. Yep. Um, so, whereas Highland is just, you know lots of people brew decks and come up with different ideas and um just a different sort of play style as well all right fair all right so let's shift gears a little bit and head towards uh, mtg mate and what you do there yeah so uh would you would you consider yourself uh, a developer or an engineer oh um i guess it dep- I, what what's the distinction there for you uh i think when you work for a large organization and they want to parallel Microsoft, Amazon, and Meta, you're an engineer. Oh, okay. I think a developer is a little more uh, hacky and down to earth. You just like get it done mentality. Yeah, I guess that's that's probably where I am I'm more a developer than anything. Um, uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of the, the stuff behind the ste- uh, behind the scenes is like hopes and dreams and sticky mm-hmm. tape and um, <laughs> you know, someone 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 said to me because I. I, I sort of postulated about where my skill set has gone since I've moved into working in MTG Mate and how I'm like, I sort of feel like I've got all the skills I had from my, the professional space, but I haven't really expanded on them because I've been really focusing on just sort of delivering this product and like, mm-hmm. oh, you're in founder mode, you know, you just do what you're going to do to keep the lights on and then yeah. you'll bring on new people with new ideas and stuff like that. And then so. build on top of it. But yeah, like I'm definitely, I'm definitely a developer in the terms of more down to earth, more hacky. Um, you know, if we see a problem and we can rapidly respond and create, a, you know, a very quick fix for it, that's more the sort of thing that I'm trying to hope, like try and try and accomplish rather than like mm-hmm. let's sit down and over engineer this thing that will never actually develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ship just the, the agile response being able yeah, to yeah, quickly, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think being agile has like really helped with um, our competitive advantage in many, in many ways. Like just being able to like, we see a problem, we can come up with a solution, we can ship it. Uh, you know, compared to a lot of other people in the space who are on these sort of cookie cutter platforms, where yeah. if you have an issue with it, you just deal with it and hope that they ship an update. Yep. Um, and so, are you self-taught, or is this something you went to school for? Uh, I did go to university. Um, I, I went to university a few times and tried many different degrees before mm-hmm. I finally landed on IT, and it was the thing that I was enjoying the most, and I felt that I was doing doing well at. But in high school, I sort of played around with writing different uh, applications and stuff like that. Yep. Um, uh, and then yeah, took the took the leap and made MTG Mate. All right. Yeah. Uh, a similar story. Uh, in high school, I took uh, C plus plus. And a little bit of Java, went to university, started out as a comp sci major, hated the program, and uh, <laughs> ditched it, but kept playing around. 
in my spare time. Yeah. Now, uh, as you have actually moved into founder mode for a magic site using these skills, uh, what kind of brought you to combine these interests and build mdgmate.com.au? Yeah, so like I had always wanted to open a game store. So I worked in my parents' game store most of the way through university. And, um, you know, I had dreams of starting my own game store and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, finished my degree, got an actual job in the, the industry that I was getting the degree in. And so that sort of fell along the wayside and I just sort of traded cards here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, the last job that I had before MTG Mate, I actually got made redundant. Um, uh, the company got bought out and they were shutting down the particular platform that, that we were on. And so like I knew that I had a five month, I had a five month lead time in having to like find a new job and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I decided that, that this was the perfect opportunity to sort of like give the game store thing a go. You know, I could save aggressively and start getting all my ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it didn't really feel right to open like a physical game store, and the barrier was a lot um, easier for me to just build like an online platform hmm. um, rather than like trying to sign leases and uh, okay. hire staff and all that kind of stuff. And there were just a lot of things that I thought were sort of fundamentally broken in the industry, and at least in Australia. It seemed too hard to buy cards locally websites were too confusing shipping took too long um you know and some of the prices were a bit outlandish and these were all kind of things that i i wanted to fix right rather than having to like more often than not we couldn't source cards locally so you'd have to order them from from channel fireball or mtg mint card and you'd wait a couple weeks for the shipping to arrive and stuff like that and i just felt like these were things that i could probably achieve with the skill set i had and um yeah it's was tinkering away and uh my, my very first version of the website was actually a facebook bot um hmm. it was just linked to a, a spreadsheet and you could type cards into it and it would tell you if i had it and how much it was okay and there was like you know if you found the thing that you were looking for then you could uh, message me on facebook and ask me about the cards because that was like just finding problems that i wanted like simple problems that i wanted to solve like yep. the problem of everyone going do you have this card and then you have to look it up and no, I don't have this card, or yes, I do. And so, like, the first one's like, I want to stop people asking me these questions. Yeah, so you've got to create your inventory system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just had a spreadsheet, and I was like, I'll give them a really simple way to query the spreadsheet, and they can just do it through the platform they're already on, Facebook, and they would just, you know, you type in cryptic command, and it would be like, hey, there are four cryptic commands, and they're $20 each or whatever mm-hmm. it was. So, so uh, I guess something I... This actually begs asking is so this is your own warehouse. This is not something like TCG Player where it's distributed inventory from multiple people. This is no, no. We have I have yeah. There's a there's a single warehouse. There's a number of staff um, that pick and ship orders every day. Um, We're actually onto our 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 second office space or our third location if you consider you know the garage the first one. You know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so like our platform is built entirely in house. Um, it has its own buy list. It has its own restock notifications. All that kind of jazz, and we're constantly trying to improve on it and mm-hmm. add new features. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a single. It's not like a marketplace or anything like that. It's probably more akin to like a card kingdom mm-hmm. than a TCG player. 
So after MTG Mate is set up and it's operating outside of Facebook, right? So yeah. You, so you have you have your first version of the website set up. So you're you know we're we're back in that that headspace, right? We want to look back there. Yep. How does having MTG Mate help you as you are traveling to events as a backpacker or a vendor now? Does it change anything? Um, I mean, like, it was really good to, like, I, I spent, I spent the first year or so networking, um, with, when I started MTG Mate, so, like, you know, uh, it's really funny, one of the people that I still keep in touch with, he told me that when he first met and saw MTG Mate at a GP, he thought we were a much larger business than we actually Ooh. were. Like, he thought we were, like, pretty big, lots of people, and realistically, it was just me and a ragtag group of people that I'd hide for the weekend. <laughs> um, so, like, I think, like, the very first version I shipped probably wasn't as, like, complete for, like, going to GPs and stuff like that. These days, we have a whole tool set that I can use and I can look up prices, I can see sales metrics and stuff like that. And it definitely helps me, like, make decisions when buying, like, for buying cards a lot yeah. easier. You can be like, oh, you know, we've moved X number of copies in the last three months and we have, you know, X minus Y copies, so we should probably buy some more if we mm. want to have a three-month supply. Yeah. Um, and you're you're flying around to different regions, so you're not looking to buy a small quantity. You're looking to buy large quantities, or I it could be small quantities of a lot of cards or large quantities of things like Sol Ring. So it's not like you are operating at case prices so to speak when you're sitting down with somebody else you're you're moving yeah. volume i want to try and bring like different things that i can pay lots of money on as well yeah. so like you know i can pay i can pay pretty reasonable on soul ring because we sell a lot of it and it's harder to get um uh you know and it's it, the traveling is mostly just to sort of complement the buy list that we have like the buy list that we have is pretty good at filling stock numbers oh, okay but um sometimes it's like it's a lot easier to just buy a hundred soul rings and not have to worry about it for a little while yeah or you know um the the hardest things to find are the small cards um because they're the ones that people are more willing to buy especially when they can't find them like oh i can't find that spare set of lana rolls these are only four dollars i'll just buy mm. another set um so like the, the the traveling has been like it, it's been on hold because of covid yeah, yeah. um and so, like, it, it's funny because the traveling wasn't necessarily a thing that I wanted to do to help the business. It was actually a goal of mine and a reason for starting up the business in the first place. Like, I always wanted to travel, mm -hmm. and I felt like I never had enough time when I worked for someone else. And so I figured if I Got did it. this magic thing, it would give me the, the space uh, and chance to do it now. Um, and that's what I did a lot of in uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. Traveled a lot met some Japanese vendors, uh, met some American vendors, like just met a whole bunch of people and networked and learned a lot from different people, sort of brought all those learnings home and tried to implement things where I could and stuff like that. Um, and so like, yeah, just started the traveling again. Um, and it's it's been interesting because like when I first started traveling, it was a much smaller business. It was just me and I had a friend at home that was picking orders while I was away. Mm -hmm. We were maybe shipping like Know, 10 orders a day a few cards here and there and now it's like a much bigger operation i think it's actually harder for me to get away for longer <laughs> periods of time because you're sort of like 
there's a lot more going on, you know, I should probably be yeah. <laughs> a little more attentive to it. So Yeah, you're you're not ready to put that um uh, that additional layer in place so you can step back and it's it's not it's not hundred percent there yet, but like my my team back home um is is great. Mm-hmm. Like I have lots of praise for them. I did do a small holiday for about three weeks last year and uh nothing burned down, nothing breaks. So that, that was that, that nothing broke, so that was pretty good. That sounds perfect. And uh, I haven't heard much this trip, so it sounds like it's all going to be pretty smooth sailing, and I should be home uh, just in time for, like, Brothers War release, which will probably require me to be a little bit hands-on to get the update ready for all the new cards on the website. Got it. So, um, you, are you, do you serve worldwide, or are you region-specific? Region-specific, yeah. Okay. Um, we have enough business with just the domestic market oh, okay. um, that we haven't... Uh, looked to expanding to overseas markets yet uh, initially sort of like the the reason for that was um i wanted to sort of just focus locally and i didn't quite know how to handle things like international fraud and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and i think we're just very busy enough dealing with just like the local market that that's something that we've just stuck to for the time being i'd ho- i'd love to in the next year sort of like uh open up things to our neighbors in New Zealand because I know a few of them have reached out and they have a hard time getting cards there too. Um, and then who knows, maybe maybe we'll do do sort of a more international shipping. But I think like a lot of the other regions are already pretty well serviced. Like, I don't want to try and compete with TCG Player. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's a race at the bottom that I'm never going to be able to match. Like, my labor costs are too high. <laughs> shipping is too high. You know, I feel like people only probably get things from us if they're in the U.S. If it's something they really can't get their hands on, yeah, uh, on TCG Player, and you can get most things there already. So that's right. Okay, so stepping away from uh, MTG Mate directly, when you look at the industry on the whole, there's an amount of automation that can happen when you don't look at the physical side of things like like pulling we're not even amazon's not even there yet they can't even fully automate that part so when you look at just what happens on the website what is there any one particular area that you think there's still a gap in the industry um i mean i think a lot of people just don't know like that some of these problems can be solved with computers um i i hear stories of like certain large vendors in the states having like 12 people that reprice all their cards mm-hmm. um and i think like the technology is getting to the point where like a lot of that could be abstracted away like we don't do a whole lot of um we we have the ability to manually price cards but a lot of it is just done automatically and then you have a little bit of human intervention where where you need it to be and i keep seeing like you know, this this new sort of like tech craze at the moment with the AI drawings and all the machine learning. Yep. I feel like it's only a small jump before someone figures out how to apply that to magic prices. Oh yeah. Um, there's enough data points out there that I feel like you could throw <laughs> throw some machine learning at it, and all of a sudden it's going to like correctly solve all all your market prices there. Yeah. I, um, I and think then it's like a really good call out. Yeah, I, I think I think like um, you know. Uh, a lot of this industry is still very very manual like i don't think people know that like you can use a computer to 
log into websites and fetch pieces of data and stuff like that like mm -hmm. certain 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 um vendors will think that the, this is the only this is the way we've always done this is the only way you can do it like i had a vendor once tell me that it was impossible to scrape prices from tcg player and i'm like that's just flatly not true yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> and here is how you do it like, yeah, right. <laughs> um like i you know i think i think you know, it, it's really cool to see all the, the sorting robots and stuff like mm -hmm. that, and I'm very envious of uh, our US counterparts because we just can't get access to things like the Roker and the, the Fizzbatch 9000. A lot of those companies won't um, ship outside North America, so in a way, I feel a little hamstrung there. Mm -hmm. um, but then, like again, like you talk to some vendors and they say, oh, I don't see the point in the robot. I can just pay someone for less money, and you're like... You're just not seeing the big picture here, like. Yeah. Money that's saved in one place is money that can be used elsewhere. Can... Yeah, or just like the thing. I think a lot of the things that like uh, people don't realize that time is the finite resource mm -hmm. in this industry. It's not money, it's not tech. It's it's just time. Like you can only hire so many people. There's only so many jobs that people can do, um, in a day. There's only so so much attention someone can give you if. Their, their task is just sorting magic cards. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, for sure. So, like, being able to, like, reduce time in certain areas so then you can spend it on more interesting things. Like, there's no reason that, you know, the person that sorts cards, you couldn't, like, teach them. If you replace that sorting part, maybe they could do business intelligence for you and have a look at the data. Exactly. You can yeah. cross-train people. You can retrain people. You can op open up new positions and opportunities for both people and the organization if you remove the mundane, the repeated tasks. Yeah. So, like, I try and, like, uh, make things as, like, comfortable and, like, try and remove some of those mundane tasks. And, like, you know, we're never going to avoid some of the things like putting cards away. Like, that's just a task that's going to happen, I think. It's probably, you know decades off being solved you know i've had people tell me like oh i could build a robot that does this but then when you start throwing numbers like oh if your robot can pick one card a second and you're shipping three thousand cards a day like that's a good number of hours yeah. that, that one robot will do you might actually get it done faster with more humans <laughs> so yeah and there's also a lot of time that has to go into setting up all the products as well there's the dexterity issue that is always my concern when it comes to not sorting, but specifically picking. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorting seems like an easier operation overall. You can kind of such and cut things off a pile, however you want to do it, vacuum it, whatever. I, I don't even know. But when you have five rows of cards, you and that's just the way things are right now, you either have to come up with something that is delicate enough to move through that five row and pull the card you need or figure out how to store your products differently yep. in order for this, right? So there's a lot of time that goes in not just to building the robot, but possibly revamping the storage system that everybody uses. And now that's an upfront cost that people have to worry about. Okay, our humans have to rearrange everything. Where's yep. the time for that? You mentioned time before. Here it is again as a blocker. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think to, like, to extend on that, I think it's only some of the big players in this industry that are going to be the ones that spend the time mm -hmm. and figure that out. Uh, the, the smaller guys are already having a hard time trying to convince them that maybe an automatic pricing system is where you want to be or yeah. you know, maybe a sorting robot will help you out um, rather than like, hey, what if we reinvented the whole way that you stored cards mm -hmm. and built you a brand new platform 
and they'd be like, no, it's, it's just too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we kind of like, come up against like two big obstacles being like time and mentality, because there are a lot of people that, like you said, believe that this is the way it was done before, so this is the way it's got to be, or it can't be done because I said it can't be done. Meanwhile, it can be, and it, there's so there's a bit of obstinance that needs to be removed, you know, eyes opened, as yeah. necessary. Yeah, I, I, I think I've definitely faced a lot of obstinance in this business. I think just people being so sure of, like, the way they do things as well. And it's, it's sort of hard. You're sort of preaching to the choir. Well, not preaching to the choir, but, like, the opposite of that. Like, you're up against a brick wall, and you're like, hey, what if you did this or experimented this? And like, no, there's no point. Like, it's just this there's no no change to be made here um you know i've had some some vendors tell me that like they think that the way that they do things is is the best way and the only way to do well in this industry and um i I have this sort of like funny series of questions that i ask them and it's like who do you think is the biggest in this industry and they commonly will answer like i think it's card kingdom and i'm like well card kingdom does so many things different to what you do like they don't vend events like that's the big one and a lot of vendors will tell me like the only way to make money in this industry is to be a vendor at an event i'm like well the biggest guy doesn't do that so i think you might be wrong (laughs) there might be a flaw in that plan yeah yeah a leak in that boat i think and uh, i like something you talked about earlier when it came down to automation where there are people that just don't want to trust like the computer they they still have people repricing their cards and that's like the opposite of like what we want to see in this industry you know looking at for me a tool that could be used across the industry that i believe more people should invest in that it seems to be lacking in a lot of places is that automation where you don't want 12 humans entering prices into a computer to just be accepted instead you would want that computer to spit out 12 different reports of hey this is what we're going to do with the pricing make changes or hit okay yeah and you just get that quick human verification just to make sure i mean like you you could even like if you don't have the human verification like let's say the computer gets it wrong you know half a percent of the time or something like that the money that you lose out on that half percent is probably greater than the cost or sorry probably smaller than the cost of hiring the 12 people to get it exactly right Mm -hmm. um and sort of like that's sort of the thing that like it's one of the approaches i sort of take is like you know i think this is going to solve like 95 percent of the problems that we have and the five percent that it doesn't solve like we'll tackle them when they come up and if it costs us a little bit of money we probably saved it by not taking the the more hands-on approach or stuff like that yeah and i i think that that's a a beautiful way to look at it because you and i are coming at this from a tech first standpoint yeah it seems like a lot of people came at this from the sports cards side of things which was which is it's i don't want to say it's antiquated in the sense of like uh sports cards have been around forever it's old it's fuddy-duddy but like a lot of those guys came from a world where they got all the information from periodicals yeah and like magazines and like you know uh you know 15 15 almost 20 years ago like the whole trading game was a complete, diff- completely different landscape. Yeah. It was like, how many numbers can you memorize in your head? And if you know more numbers on cards than the other guy, then you'll probably like do better out of it because mm-hmm. you know you'll be able to value things appropriately. Whereas this, these days, everyone has a smartphone, everyone has access to all this information, all these tools. Like, 
you don't have to do it the same way like no i I couldn't imagine trying to trade the same way that i did 20 years ago like i trade cards now it's just not possible no everyone has all these tools and while we're talking about you know trading and looking at tools that everybody has do you think there's anything like in particular that could be leveraged at all or better across all levels of the industry from vendors all the way down to backpackers or just people at an LGS? Yeah. I, so like, you know, you know, if everyone learned a little bit of coding, it'd probably be a bit better, but that's, a, that's an unrealistic <laughs> yeah, right. goal. Um, like I think, I think like, you know, a really cool piece of tech that I think people should be using is like just scryfall. Like it's, it's such a low barrier and like, I think I spent a day learning the Scryfall query language. Mm-hmm. It's such a powerful tool. Like, you know, and it's it's for players, you can be like, okay, what weird thalads do I need for my blue-black deck that costs less than three? That's a query you can write in Scryfall. But for, like, speculators, you can actually write a query that's like, which rares in modern have never been reprinted and are less than $3? And it will give you those cards too. Um and I, I just, I think Scryfall's amazing, and I've sort of encouraged all my staff to like spend a bit of time figure it out because it's just so easy to answer like a whole bevy of questions that you might ask in Magic from all different aspects, um, rather than being like just trying to scratch your head and remember things off the top. Or yep. I really get saddened when people use Gatherer. Like it's just such an awful tool. <laughs> there are just better ones out there. That is a bullet point on my list of things to do. Is actually get better with the scryfall query language because there have been times um i played the infinity release yep and i had the i can't remember the name of it sitting on a table behind me the the colorless mythic with no mana value and for one generic you reveal the card and you get to choose any oh like the mental magic card. yeah the mental magic card. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah and so i was playing uh, Bant stickers. Yep. And I, I was on my phone, so it was just even more difficult. And I just needed to find instants that were either blue or green that cost less than three. And it was just very difficult from the, the GUI interface. And I just didn't have a great understanding of the query language. So I just left up two tabs on my phone, one for blue and one for green. And I, that's yep. how I got through the event. But had I learned that interface better, it would have actually just helped me play the event better. Yeah, like, I, I would encourage, like, anyone that's involved in this industry, write down a bunch of, like, interesting questions that you want to ask about magic, and then see if you can write the query to solve it. And you've just got to do it a few times, and you'll remember that, uh, you know, E colon is the set code, and that's how you can narrow things by that. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll know that the collector number is CN, and you can use... Uh, you know, the, the alligator braces to decide, like, if it's collected numbers less than 260. Um, you can ask for variants, you can ask for border types, you can have it show all the unique prints if you want to see all the printings of Elvish Mystic. Um, and, like, it's incredibly well documented. And then, like, once you write a few of them, like, you can punch out most of the queries that you're going to ask, and then occasionally you'll just have to look at the, the source and you know, the little reference material and it'll tell you exactly that last little bit you need for yeah. the question. But like, yeah, I think, I think there should definitely like, I'd love to see more Scryfall adoption. And I see tools like Moxfield, Moxfield support Scryfall. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so, like, you can, you know, it, it, all its information is actually backed back off Scryfall, and you can do little queries in there as well yep. for certain things. Um, MTG Ban, uh, their, their pricing tool uses Scryfall query language, a sort of hybrid of it as well. Okay. Um, and so, like, it's really cool to see that sort of becoming a standard as well um, in the industry. And, yeah, that's probably my biggest my biggest thing that I'd say people people should use that and like uh google search shortcuts um just saves a bunch of time yeah like a lot of people don't know that you can uh in in chrome you can actually set search shortcuts um so i have one set up and it's, it's ckf um and it will whenever i search a card it'll automatically fill out the search as though it's card kingdom mm-hmm. but it'll have the right query parameters for foil so i don't actually have to click the foil tab because normally you go like ponder. And oh yeah. Click the f- yeah. The foil tab. Yep, yep. Yeah. And so like I have a couple of those set up for their buy list and other various things. So rather than like typing in card kingdom ponder and then clicking the first link on Google and then clicking the, mm-hmm. the foil link, it'll just jump straight to the thing. Um, and that sort of you know stems from my whole like time is the finite yes. resource here and how can I save as much of it and make the efficiency make aspect of things. Yeah, yep. yeah. yeah, absolutely. For whatever reason, Chrome uh, shortcut Amazon to A M A O N, which saves me more time than I want to admit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should just accidentally remove the letter in my uh, my search. All right, that's fine. Yep. I'll take the hack. I think that's interesting because usually a lot of people would come down and actually say, like go to the the general question of like what can we use more. More people would probably pick a tool. They're like, oh, you should like you learn how to do this, you know, code this, or learn how to master something like something else. Not use scryfall which is just, it just i just think the barrier tool the, the, the barrier to enter in scryfall is so low like if i told someone you should learn a programming language that's a that's a big investment right yeah. um and you know some people might spend a weekend they might get the hang of it other people might spend a weekend and barely get past hello world but everyone kind of knows how to use scryfall mm-hmm. and how to use search it's just how can you get the most out of the tool that you're currently using yeah um and I, you see it in all kinds of different aspects. Like, you know, the, the classic one I see is like, you see people scrolling with a spreadsheet and they want to get to the bottom and they just drag and they wait for like 30 seconds because it's a long spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. But like, I think it's like control shift down or something will jump automatically to it. And like, yep. you've just got to like take the second and be like, all right, there must be a faster way to do this. Yeah. So yeah. Just got to memorize what it is. And then all of a sudden your life is just a little bit better because of it. Yeah. You, you had to look it up once write it down and then from then on you're just going to start accruing yeah. that time back in your totally. life totally yeah. like every, everyone knows copy paste right mm-hmm. we don't have to type out the thing <laughs> looking at it from a different tab like you just copy paste and like it's just an extension of that so. yeah no that, that's, a, that's a really interesting and, and and cool answer it's not what i was expecting and in, in all honesty because a lot of people will just tell you something like learn excel like oh, cool yeah to do what I don't yeah. know. Just learn. Make a pivot table. I don't know. Learn uh, what is it? V not V code or whatever is inside Excel. Oh, so you can, VS code. VS code. So you can go open a web page and scrape it in there. Like cool. What are you trying to tell me by saying learn Excel? Yeah. But learn I mean, learn Scryfall is a very applicable thing for us as Magic players, as collectors. It that's fantastic. But yeah, I think yeah, everyone everyone across the whole industry, from like the player to mm-hmm. the person at the store, when someone asks for a card that they both can't remember the name of, to like you know, 
the speculator who wants to figure out what might be their next targets like you can write a query yeah for most of these things and it will it'll get i think like scryfall has definitely made the uh tech landscape of magic way better like i, I don't think i could build mtg made as well without scryfall mm-hmm. um it's it's you know done it, it's jumped everything like years above years oh, advance. for sure like you don't have to like get your own image for your own project you can like cool scryfall has it for me i can get this project this this hacking hacking project that i'm working on like yeah a good a good jump ahead rather than being like oh i wrote it but i didn't bother to do images yet because that seems too difficult to solve they, like, scryfall put together so many resources to build their platform that making it available through their api has simplified development for individuals like us so much compared to what it used to be when we had to go out and hit like mtg json to get the gatherer side of things then yeah. try and take that data and throw that at the tcg player api to go get prices and somewhere along the way maybe get an image like yep. that used to be so much work and scryfall has done so much and made that data available in such a nice little package like you said it, it's fantastic and, and it's the and it's the best price it's free. it's free. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually leads into the last question I have, which I think is kind of this this big thought project. What area do you think would greatly improve from the democrat sorry, democratization of development or engineering efforts? And that could be anything from like somebody opening up their website with uh, an API or sales information or making like shopper profile analytics yeah so so like i think i think the best thing that like if if we could decide if like collectively as a community magic could decide on like a really good standard for storing like your collection and stuff i think that would like do leaps and bounds for the industry um just being able to be like this is ex- this 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 special code represents this card and then every website could have a csv import and like every different collection tracking tool could all use the same kind of standard so mm. it's not like oh i have to write a converter from deckbox.org to cube tutor to like all of these different things like i think just having a really simple standard for that would like make things incredibly easy like the number of times you would get a spreadsheet from someone and it's like they've typed in the set codes the way they think they should be or something like that yep um and then you're like i can't really parse this collection without a human because you've decided to call this particular thing you've called it ravnica not ravnica city of guilds oh god you know (laughs) You know, you've called it sixth edition with the number six rather than classic sixth edition all written in in text and i think like i think magic took uh like wizards took a sort of a step in the right direction when they sort of put those machine readable codes on it but it'd be really nice if they stopped changing the rules or how everything works and just i don't know maybe they print a uuid on every card or something like it'd be really cool if every unique card had a very simple code and then a person could just go to the spreadsheet and go oh i have you know rna 2364b and that's that's the thing that says like this is a foil you know card from this set and this is the exact copy that you're kind of expecting and it's it's sort of heading in that direction like the extended arts are 
you know, have their own code and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But, you know, they, they, they change the rules every different set. Yeah. You know, this, this Warhammer set, for instance, uh, the traditional foils that are available in the Warhammer set are collector numbers that sit out the regular range of the collector numbers, when traditionally it's just the alternate of the card that's in the correct collector number. Hmm. And stuff like that that sort of bugs me as a as a software engineer. Yeah. Like, oh, what the, he, the sets changed the rules for Magic. Let me figure out how to fix my my website to handle this now. Or, you know, um, the heads you lose, tails, I win. Oh, now we have double-sided cards that have the same card on the back oh, of the front. Yeah. <laughs> like, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, no, just, I think a standardization on, like, how we handle data um, between different sources would mm-hmm. be great. Because, you know, every time I deal with, like, another vendor that, like, wants to sell me cards or an individual... Like I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have the ability to write a script and I can kind of figure out how to translate their data into our data. Mm-hmm. But if it was just like, here's the standard code, you know, it's the quantity and the standardized code, and that's all you needed to know. And that code would tell you if it was English, foil, Japanese, Galaxy foil, whatever. Like, I think Yu-Gi-Oh has something that's kind of like that, where they have like kind of where the set symbol is they have like a unique code for yes. for cards but it doesn't always ring true as being unique and yeah that's that's a that's a thing that i think would help yeah so it sounds like you're uh angling for an iso yeah just uh i mean, I mean and like we're, 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 it's kind of close like scryfall is like done um uuids mm-hmm. which is great um but like i think like for the like vendor side of things like the UUID and Scryfall just points to a printing of a card and not it encompasses all the different variants whereas like I think having like some kind of standard like like a multiverse ID but it like it tells you that it's also foil it's also Japanese it's all of the different characteristics that make that card mm. completely unique you know and if the only difference is like a language there's a separate code for the other language as well so then there's no confusion or you don't you can reference just one field in one column in a database rather than a collection of like three or four to... yeah then the translation layers like you're talking about like yeah and, and i think that should be printed on the card somewhere or something so that you can look at a card and be like i don't need to know anything about this card except for this little code down the bottom and that will identify in all of these systems mm, yeah and then i think you know that'll help that'll help vendors be able to like buy cards from players it'll help players keep track of their collections and know which things that they're missing and all that kind of stuff and you know inputting things into systems should be easier rather than like a million drop downs like oh i have this card but i have the japanese version and it's like you know it's a foil yeah and it's actually this variant or something like yeah um to to the point you made the the uh the Yu-Gi-Oh set code and uh, the Pokemon, the way uh, the way Watsy handled Pokemon, for me functioned similarly similarly to that, um, but only when you're using the correct resource. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're on Troll and Toad, for anybody that doesn't know, you can type in the set code and the number of a Yu-Gi-Oh card, and it'll pop every card with that that set code and number. And like you said, for the most part, that is one unique card. Sometimes they have re recycled. 
for Pokemon if you use the collector numbers, so numerator over denominator, it yep. will get you exactly that card and all the other ones that match, which is, at this point in time, a decent amount, but it gets you where you need to go. Very yeah. a, a lot easier than typing Charizard. Yeah, or Terra. Yeah. Birds of Paradise, which one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, if Birds of Paradise were card uh, X over Y in a set, on Troll and Toad, you could just literally type in that number, and then, yeah, you would get that one specific Bird of Paradise from that set because it could have been shifted somewhere else in the set code from, uh, you know, revised to 4th to 5th to 6th. Yeah. But you but you would just get an expanded amount. So, like, Troll and Toad has done a little bit of that kind of standardization, but more for the virtue of their own employees than the greater audience at large yeah. for games. Like, that was a resource that I was I was taught to use when I was both buying and selling. That was, like, our quote-unquote shortcut to find cards faster. Yeah. But... Yeah, we, we have an internal one that we use, and it's, like, a combination of the different attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be nice that I if we didn't have to invent our own, that it yes. just was one that existed. Yep. Like, you know, you, you could punch that into Scryfall, and Scryfall's like, yes, here is Portuguese terror from fifth edition like perfect that's exactly what you wanted and uh, i i think that's great i think standardization isn't something that a lot of people think about because they don't have to deal with it it is the data that they are looking for is just presented back to them as they asked for it they don't want to see how that sausage is made so to speak (laughs) they don't want to know how you had to go take the data from your system to merge it with tcg players api data and pull that together they don't care they just care that what you presented is what they need Yep. Now, uh, that's the last question I had. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, either about uh, MDG Mate or uh, anything that's been going on? I know you were just at A30. You're going to be here for a little bit, like you said, kind of moving and shaking in the U.S. Um, no, I think I think I'm pretty much I think I'm pretty much uh, conversationed out at this point. We've okay. hit a lot of points. Um, you know, I could I could talk about Magic Thirty, but I think a lot of people will be able to read about that on Reddit yep. <laughs> and. Uh, I think people were very vocal about how well or not well run that event <laughs> was. That event was so. Yeah. All right. All right, Nick. Well, thanks for joining us. I hope everybody enjoyed this portion of the podcast, and we will be back shortly with our picks. So I we decided just now that I went first last week. So this week, you get to take it away with the first. Alrighty, so I will take it away first. Beforehand, I want to again thank Nick for coming on. If anyone listening is in Australia, MTG Mate is the place to go. Yes. So, my pick is Aetherflux Reservoir. Well, why are you picking some card that's about to be reprinted? I'm actually picking it because it's about to be reprinted. Mm-hmm. So, it's been reprinted before, and it was in Mystery Booster cards, both the convention version and the retail version. Now, if you take a look at the stocks graph, and this is why I'm picking it, you can see that when the retail version of the Mystery Boosters came out, which was right around when the pandemic became official, uh, like March, early March, we hit at that point an all-time high on the card of $6, and then it cratered down to below $4. Fast forward to today, and we've started to see a little dip again because we know it's getting reprinted in a retro border and Brothers War. It was just $12. And before it went from close to seven down to three, and we've now quadrupled up from that. Yep. Now the retro border non-foils are obviously going to be pretty prevalent. Why am I picking this card? Because this is an EDH card. 
it's a card that existed at a time before a lot of people, according to Wizards metrics, which obfuscated though they are, do indicate more people are playing the game now than were before the pandemic. This is the kind of card that when it gets more eyes on it, it has significantly more liquidity and significantly more demand. Now, while it's not necessarily the win count of choice for CEDH anymore, the way that it was in 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. it's still a card that sees a lot of play because it's generic color agnostic. It goes into Spells Matters decks. It goes into Life Gain decks. It just goes into general value decks as well. It sides into literally everything. everything. If you have a deck with an Isochron Scepter, you run it in there. Doesn't matter. It's also a card that people have sitting around in trade binders, just lying around from when they picked it up. A lot of people I know picked up two or three copies in case they ever wanted another one for an EDH deck. It's also nice because it goes into the casual players pool as well as the competitive players pool, which mm -hmm. gives us a very broad market on this card. Now, the interesting thing about this is obviously you're never going to see this in Constructed unless it's, you know, an invisible kitchen table player that may have it in some life gain deck that's a 60 card. Other than that, this is EDH players all day long. Yes. So as far as timeline, what I am saying is... Now, this one's going to be kind of interesting. So typically what I would say is wait for release day. Okay. Because on release day, the card's going to tank on TCG player. It's not really the case anymore because Wizards is letting brick and mortars now sell stuff on pre-release weekend. So as far as picking this up, I would honestly imagine even with the moved up timeline, you'd probably want to wait about a week and a half because then we get a bunch of this product opened. There's going to be a bunch of it populated out there. You'll have like peak singles. You'll have your pre-release and your release weekends out in the wild. Mm -hmm. I would expect just based on the previous metric of us seeing a 50% loss in price. Now, I don't necessarily think we're going to get quite that low where we'll go down to like five fifty six dollars but I would be comfortable long-term sitting on this at about $7, expecting a reasonable rate of return. Now, the reason for that is because if you take a look at the stocks graph, again, after we hit rock bottom in April of 2020, we hit a peak shortly thereafter 12 months later. So timeline, once you pick it up, I'd expect, honestly, about the same return on this. Now, we may see it in a secret layer or something, but I wouldn't expect it too much because one thing that Wizards has been fairly reasonable about doing is when they have cards in these like chase versions over the last couple of years, ever since Ikoria, they tend to not reprint them again for a quantity of time uh, because they want that product to carry it rather than a secret layer or something like mm -hmm. that. So I'd expect us to be sitting it around, we're getting in at $7, and in about 12 months, we could probably reasonably expect to get out at about 12 to 15 uh, now, quantity-wise, I'd be looking at, honestly, you don't need a whole lot of these. Uh, you don't want EDH playsets either, where you want quantities of five. That said, if we're getting it at about $7, I wouldn't mind sitting on about 10 of these things and just mm -hmm. parking them. Because I spent $70 on Sarkins on ceilings, and that is clearly not working out for me. This one is way more likely to work out for you. So this is a much more sound investment of your $70, if you wanted to go to 10 Yep. Now, in terms of profitable buy listing, you may have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, and that may, again, depend on how paper events go. If we start getting an explosion of events, more papers out there, more EDH is being played, you may be able to profitably buy list a little bit sooner. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking to trade out, I would expect about 10 to 12 months here. 
on the buy list timeline, I'd be looking at a little bit longer because you'd want to be basically at the point where on the stocks graph, we were in like late May Yeah, is where you would have been able to just floor it out there and just make that bank. Uh, so that's the timeline I'd be looking at. I think it's solid because it's just a nice look of a card that's getting reprinted yeah. and has the opportunity to hit a new floor and then set a new floor after it rises again. So we're going to have a new floor now that's higher than it was before, and then it'll go back up to what is the reasonable rate. Mm -hmm. Because even right now, it had basically gotten up to close to its all-time high of $12 at about 11 and a quarter. So we were basically right back there again before this reprint happened. So very confident about this one in the mid to long term in that like 10 to 12 month range. Yeah. Uh, and I just think it's really solid with the reprint coming because it also means that as Brothers War comes out, people are going to be crazy about this set because it's a throwback to objectively the best storyline Magic has ever had. Jace is a hack and he sucks. Uh, this was great. So I expect a lot of content creators to touch on this stuff too. More eyes, more liquidity, more value. Yep. No, I, I like the pick overall. Uh, Aetherflux Reservoir is a card I kind of keyed on when they came out. Not like Panharmonicon, um, but something I did pick up in a small quantity, and I think I still have them all kicking around. And I just like it overall for Commander. Like you said, it, it just goes in everything. And when you look at Rec for, for this card, out of the like almost 15 most popular Commanders on page 1, like four of them are uh, have a play rate of under 50%, the lowest being 47. So 40% of the Daxos, Blessed by the Sun, the mono white deck, play this card. And it just yeah. goes up from there, right? To to pure combo decks with Kentaro and uh, Crick, where you yeah. can just do dumb things with like Bulls, Citadel, and Sensei's Divining Top. But to your point, you don't just have to play it in that. One of the decks yeah. that's not really represented in here is a Spellslinger deck. And this is a really good way to just end the game with a Spellslinger deck when you're just casting a lot of stuff. You don't want to play Is it? You can just play Mono Blue Talran Dirtles, make a bunch of 2-2 yeah. Drakes, and if that doesn't close out the game, Aetherflux Reservoir probably can, where you just fire your laser at somebody and erase them from the game. Like It just plays really well across the majority of the format, and I think it's an underserved card because of that. So yeah, the content creator push is going to be great for this card. And if you got to sit on it for a while, I think it's perfectly fine. You get out of yeah, it. Get out of it. It's not like you're sitting on a five hundred dollar time vault, which is still one of my favorite picks. But it was a good one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but like, what's the worst? You just put this in your binder and you make profit on it when you trade it out. Like, I think that's perfectly fine because you're still serving the community. You're not buying a card that is just like some of the the picks that I touched on that I made with like a little more narrow. And you're like, I'm gonna buy these enchantress only cards. Like, no. Aetherflux Reservoir just kind of goes everywhere, but it just seems like people forgot about it, they don't realize it, they just need a guiding hand. Yeah. And yeah, I, I really like the pick overall. So, my pick, uh, I'm sticking with the, the theme of, like, in the shadow of Brothers War, we operate. And for me this week, I'm picking Defiler of Vigor. This is a card that I was going to pick around for the next couple of weeks before I, I made the pick, and just go with cards that worked really well with it, and as you can see, this basically just, is so good. It is extremely good. It just tanks and then ropes. And this is why I like this card right now, because it's just flat, and I don't think it's going anywhere. This is uh, Flat Fuck Friday all over again. So I added this to my list about a month ago in October, and Card King was buying 40 at a, about a buck 10. There were 392 at 440 on TCG Player, 
uh, as of my choosing this as my pick, Card Kingdom is buying more, 63 for less at about a dollar. But I think that's perfectly fine because our plan isn't to out the buy list right now because this card is insane. And this doesn't go in every commander deck that plays green, but rather any commander deck running creatures with a high density of green permanents because you need to put the counters on something and any green permanent triggers this. So you don't want green to be your splash color. You want it to be your primary permanent color. And after that, your creature's going to be whatever color. It doesn't freaking matter. Now, across the entire of the format, like, reading the card, its utility is pretty on the nose, and that's where it falls in the format. People are going to play this in any and every capacity they can. It's basically a crater huff at all alternative. You know, it's not Pathbreaker, Pathbreaker Ibex, uh, Pain Bacon, the Decimated Provinces. <laughs> but to a value growth engine, something like uh, Shalai, the yeah. with the angel with the gravity township ability and yep. this also triggers various counter base effects like there's the mutate style ability it's like when well, this creature gets a counter do a thing right this is this is just a ton yeah and it there's even unique infinite combo engine or sorry unique there's so many ways to go infinite with this card and there are a number of unique ways to do it something like cloudstone curio that just lets you bounce that green permanent or, or creature, you know, creature that permanent that green permanent over and over and over again. Teamer Sabretooth, that's another popular quote combo engine. Just that one card, just to continue to trigger this. It also powers up the Outlast keyword. Outlast! You can give all your creatures flying with one Falconer. Like, that's insane. And I forget that ability exists. Exactly, because it's sorcery speed and terrible. But when you can just... It's so bad. When you have Falconer on board and then Defiler hits later and you just play a green permanent, now all your creatures have a singular counter in flying. And that's a lot better. Yeah. Now, it's all of this that I like. It's everything about this card. It's, it's everything that it does. It's much less salty than a number of similar cards, Creator Hoof, which means it gets the casual appeal behind it. And it can combo out in a myriad of ways, which also helps push the appeal to people who are more spiky. Yeah. And, as Pink Pink Floyd said, all in all, it's just another brick in the wall. <laughs> That's it. This is just fantastic for, yeah. for Commander. Now, the reason I said we're operating in the shadows of Brothers War. My timeline. <clears throat> With Bro about to release, this cools DMU main set and draft set pack cracking cb opening is going to stay high because of the legends inserts i believe yeah. and that will further suppress the price of the card not by much but it will keep it down not like main set draft set opening so yeah. i expect this to continue to rope through the rest of dominaria block so that's three more sets i believe unless yeah. we get some very strong green cards to pull attention like it gets pushed into standard or something like that yeah. If that does does not happen, I would expect this to be about a year long hold, despite fairly aggressive sales numbers. So it's the same thing that you were talking about. We're looking at about a year here to see some real good growth on this, unless there's a content creator push. Now, uh, in the last month, 970 approximate Nearman copies sold, 260 LP copies sold. So this thing has velo behind it, and sustained demand will drain supply but i think it's going to be longer term there's like i mentioned 433 vendors currently with this card so it's going to take a while to get there 
and I think demand might cool a little bit as people focus as we get back to new sets we're just going to see that wave of demand like up oh, new set here's the spark we're going to go chase that and then people will come back unless there's something big and mopey to well maybe not mopey just big and dumb to play alongside this then it gets that push but about a year and I'm not even looking at buy list yet I don't know what that's going to look like this is basically a year to trade out it might yeah. be closer to 15 to 18 months to buy a list in all honesty but we're buying this as an EDH staple, and I think I'd rather move this to locals than expect to move this to buy list. Yeah. Now, reprint equity on this, I think this one's pretty cut and dry. Unless these appear, and when I say these, I mean the defilers in a commander product in the future, I don't expect them or any other Phyrexians to reappear in standard sets or supplementals. We might yeah. get some. Uh, that's out. This is outside of DMU block. We know we're going to get some later on, but they're not going to reprint the defilers in like three sets from now whenever that is it's After, not colossal dreadmaw exactly we're not going to get three printings of this in standard so uh, once we move out of dom block that's what i expect unless we get phyrexians in a commander product that's it they're gone yeah now by quantity i've picked up about a dozen of these a few weeks ago once it started to rope and i just tossed them in a box for later at current market prices, I think it's a solid amount to sit on to allow you to trade them slowly as the entry point is fairly cheap. And basically, yeah. I would just trickle them out that way. Uh, picking up 12 is basically about 50 bucks, something like that. Ish, yeah. Yeah, because they're, like, they're bouncing four. around. Yeah, four and change. And I... It's not that I don't believe in the buy list number for this card. We need this card to 5x on buy list to start making yeah. profit on this and i think that could honestly happen going from a one to, to five it's not yeah. out of the question i can't tell when that's going to be though because it has been this cheap for about a month now yeah and card kingdom opens quantity we know that so they're probably driving their own prices down a bit here but they're also buying more than they have in the past which means they're seeing demand so it's difficult to really come up with that number. That's why I think trade is the opportunity here. We can out them faster and for more and churn this card, this money a little bit better and a little bit faster than sitting on it forever. That's not something I like to advocate for often, but it is definitely a way to make sure that you are able to get your investment back faster. You can reach the black, the, the black faster by trading, the, yeah. by trading some amount of these out to break even and then the, keep the rest in in the vault and then out them later and that's profit this is definitely this is definitely a scheme you can use here it's it, it's something that you'll get by on here i just think it's going to take like i said about a year to really get out um at like closer to five maybe six based on yeah. current demand for the set so that's my expectation for this and if it keep if it continues to rope throughout bro and you want to re-up i think that's perfectly fine too keeping a couple of these in the binders is going to keep interest on them locally and that's the other reason i would look at to trade them more than anything else because they should churn pretty quickly just based on sales numbers alone you know yeah we uh we looked at what 1200 in about a month just from lp and nm it should not pretty be that good difficult. velocity yeah. yeah it should not be that difficult for you to move these locally so that's where i am right now yeah i think one of the best things about this is that being in green it's such a casual friendly color uh it's also interesting that this was their attempt at effectively i guess fixing phyrexian mana yeah I didn't because even... you can only pay one but you can do it on literally every Everything. spell so it has 
really good abusability, kind of, uh, but it's still like an insanely good casual card. It's also, again, with that amount of liquidity and such a seemingly low reprint equity, because I agree, I don't think we're ever like, this is their attempt to fix uh-huh. Phyrexian mana. This is what they're trying to do to say, oh, well, maybe it was a mistake to make Mental Misstep free. Uh, I don't expect them to go back to that mechanic very much throughout the course of Magic, because anytime they've done something like it, it's just completely buggered the game. Yes. So I think the reprint equity is really low on this one, and I think it is one that's similar to you. I would be comfortable at, like, maybe even 24 of them. Now, the interesting thing about Defiler is I think it kind of falls into, like, the Merktide effect, like I call it. Uh, Merktide Regent. The reason that the variant foils are as low as they are, and the set foil is as high as it is, is because of exactly what you mentioned. Collector boosters. Mm -hmm. You could not get the non-sketch foil in collector boosters. It only came in set packs. So, if you were to want to go for foils, I'd have to check for Dom Yu. I know it's been pretty consistent across collector boosters. I don't know if you can get the foil of this from Domu boosters as readily as you can from the set boosters. So that may be something else to keep in mind, along with the non-foil, is in yeah. Domu, I think there's only two to three slots for rare or mythic non-foils in there. That's not a lot. No, the price would indicate that you're right. They're like yeah. 20 to 40 cents off. Okay. So yeah, I would expect that you'll see a little bit of growth there and that you'll see some kind of stagnation literally because the boosters that are being opened for people to get products just don't contain this card Mm -hmm. so you'll see stagnation on other cards while this card continues to climb because people just aren't opening set boosters so real solid long term i think yeah uh but that's it for me this week anything else nope that does it so that'll be it for this week for MTG Cabalcast on twitter facebook patreon and youtube i am at halt i am reptar you are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week. See ya.